Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there, welcome to our eighth True Crime Digest. If you have listened to them in the past, you'll know that what we do here is we cover cases we've already talked about. Sometimes we talk about new cases. Oftentimes, we talk about the Lori Vallow case. There have been so many updates that Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell's cases are going to be talked about in their own episode. So that'll come out next week. But I just wanted to give you a heads up there. But we have many updates to discuss And we're also going to touch on two or three new cases, but we're going to touch on them pretty briefly. We think that they're just important to discuss and we might expand on them in the future. So let's dive on in. We're going to start with the Kendrick Johnson case. And the last we discussed Kendrick, we mentioned that there was a new documentary that came out. As a brief reminder, Kendrick Johnson was the young man who was found rolled up in a gym mat in his school's gym. Initially, the cause of death was determined to be positional asphyxia. That was later refuted. In addition, the general suspicious nature of where his body was, how he was positioned, what was there, what wasn't there, some oddities in his autopsy, and then connections between suspects and members of the FBI really spurred a lot of conspiracies about this case and a lot of questions of what the hell is going on here. Yeah. There's also the fact that like the sheriff at the time was completely unwilling to discuss any theories other than accidental death. We have a whole episode on it. If you haven't listened, I would thoroughly suggest listening. I think it's a very interesting and sad case. One of the key pieces of information that was introduced in the new documentary is surveillance footage that shows the primary suspect, Brian Bell, standing near Kendrick before he disappeared and was found dead because at first he was missing. Bell had previously said that he hadn't seen Kendrick all day. The surveillance footage was found in FBI reports that were previously redacted. And then the producers of Finding Kendrick were able to obtain unredacted copies of it with a Freedom of Information request. And that's when they saw the surveillance footage. Now, I will say like the photos themselves, and we'll post this on our socials as we always do. They're near each other, but they're not together. They're kind of like looking in different directions. It looks like they're passing by one another. And so I don't know that I could tell you as a high school student, every person who walked past me. No, and it looks like it's so brief that they just kind of walk past each other. Yeah. And what I told Lindsay when we first saw these photos was if I passed someone in the hall, unless I said hello or they said hello to me or something significant happened, I can't tell you every person I passed. Yeah. And I probably would have said, no, I I don't think I saw them that day. I would probably go a little further and be like, huh, at any time during our schedules, do we ever pass each other? And I would have tried to figure out if there was any way I could have and been like, well, perhaps I did. I don't know. But in that case, it looks like they just walked past each other. So I see what they're saying as to, hey, he said he didn't see him all day. And it's on record that he did indeed lay eyes on him, perhaps. But it's not like they addressed each other from what I could see. It doesn't look like anything significant happened to where he would remember that. I agree. And even if he had said hello to him or something like that, I mean, think about people who you were friends with or acquaintance with during high school. You would probably greet them every day. So greeting them wouldn't necessarily stick out in your head. But for this, I don't think that the interesting part necessarily was that they existed in the same place at the same time. 
It was that why wasn't this footage shared previously? Because so many details of this case have been shared. You're able to see Kendrick's body. Right. 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 They've shared plenty of surveillance footage of him walking around the school. A lot has been shared. And it's odd that this wasn't. And because I believe it was Brian Bell's father who was in the FBI and this was an FBI report, that's kind of some of the hmm, that seems suspicious. Yeah, that makes it kind of sketchy that why would it like if it's so insignificant, why would you hide it? Exactly. Exactly. So that's the update we have for Kendrick Johnson's case. Yeah. And one that we covered a while back was the Garrish Chung family. And to remind you what that was, it was Jonathan Garrish, Ellen Chung, their one-year-old daughter, Miju Chung Garrish, and their dog, Oski, were all found dead on the morning of August 17th on the Savage Lundy Trail. Their cause of death at that time was unknown. And there were so many theories. And we addressed a lot of them coming from algae to mines to all kinds of stuff, right? Well, there was a final press release that was released on October 21st that answered this question. And it was from the Mariposa County Sheriff's Office. As of October 15th, officials had determined the official cause of death. Based on the autopsy, their investigation, and toxicology results, it was determined that the cause of death for Jonathan, Ellen, and Miju had been determined to be hyperthermia and probable dehydration due to environmental exposure. Interesting, right? I know there's a lot of people that are like, "Mm -mm." there's a lot of people that are saying, no, that's not it. And they're debating this. So if you look at any of the forums, I am one of these people. Yeah. So just to say, because it sounds kind of weird, right? When I first read it, I'm like, hypothermia. No, it's hyperthermia. And hyperthermia is the opposite of hypothermia. I didn't know it was called that. I had never actually heard it, which is weird because I live in the desert. You would think that I should know that. Yes. But it's super similar in the case that it happens when the body reaches a dangerously high temperature instead of low. And hyperthermia is an umbrella term, and it refers to several conditions that can occur when the body's heat regulation system can't handle the environment, so the heat of the environment. It occurs when the body temperature is above 104 degrees. Have you even felt what a 100-degree day is, Lindsay? Does that happen there? It does every once in a while. It's not often. So with hyperthermia, it can come in stages, and that includes things like heat stress, heat fatigue, fainting from the heat, heat cramps, edema, heat rash, and then the last stage is called heat exhaustion. And in my head, I was just like, heat exhaustion is all of those things, right? Well, it's the more serious stage, and and a lot of people are saying this is probably what happened, and it occurs when the body can no longer cool itself. It's basically the last stage before heat stroke. And so some people are like, all right, this is what happened. And then again, I'll go, go over a few other details that came of it. But Oski's death is still undetermined. And based off of the condition of the body, though, investigators are saying that Oski suffered from heat-related issues as well. Something else that came up, I couldn't find it before, but Oski was an eight-year-old Aussie Akita mix. So he was probably very fluffy, thick fur. On the other side of it, though, normally like Huskies and Akitas and things like that, from what I understand, their thick fur doesn't only keep them warm, but it also helps regulate temperature. But then I don't know how much water that poor dog had that day. A dog that was suffering from exposure to heat in that way would have been panting like crazy. Right. Well, and they were near a river. 
and they would have been the first to pant. Say they were like, this doesn't feel this hot to us. Their poor dog would have been like panting up a storm. Yeah. So I'm having a really hard time believing that three people and a dog died from hyperthermia because I'm not a parent, but there's a baby in my life who I love very much. And if it was really hot out, I would be like, it's too hot for you to be out here. So I have a hard time believing that Jonathan and Ellen would have been like, it's fine to bring our baby in this sweltering time. Or that, like, say they were like, man, it's getting hotter than we thought it was going to be. I feel like you would head back sooner, right? Yeah. And there's a little bit that came out from that, too. Within this press release, there was a more detailed timeline of the events that happened. And it included some of these temperatures. And I think that maybe that could come into play a bit. So we didn't know all of this. But on Saturday night, which would have been the 14th, Jonathan used an app to plot the route, right? However, he only entered waypoints, so point-to-point mapping, and that doesn't calculate exact trail mileage or elevation changes. So to him, it might have looked easier, perhaps, but he had hiked often. So he was used to using some of these trail apps. Yeah. So you would think like he would have known, especially if he was bringing his family. So that's one kind of like, hmm, maybe he didn't quite know. Second thing is on Sunday morning, which would have been the 15th, a witness saw the truck heading towards the area which was the um, Heights Cove Trail around 7.45 in the morning. And then around 8 a.m., they saw the truck parked at the trailhead and the family was not around. So they assume they already went on their hike. At this time, the temperature was between about 74 and 76. So not terrible. Like that that's fine hiking weather in the sun. It's probably going to get hot. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. But like outside of that, especially if there's any tree coverage, sure. I would say that's a good hiking day. Yeah. Well, then the family hiked and they had the baby in a backpack style carrier. So they were walking. Dog was walking, obviously. Baby was being carried. While hiking, though, the temperature probably rose between 92 degrees to about 103 at different times, depending on the area that they would have been at that precise moment. Then they began a steep incline section on the Savage Lundy Trail. And the section of the trail, this particular area was exposed to constant sunlight without much shade. And that's due to the Ferguson fire from 2018. So then at this point, they were hiking in just direct sunlight. And the temperatures would have been between about 107 and 109 from about 1250 to 250. Wow. Yeah. So like starting in the 70s, maybe he didn't really take into account, hey, there's not going to be tree coverage over here. This is going to take much longer than I thought. The elevation's different. They say the family hiked approximately two miles up the Savage Lundy Trail. The following day on the 16th, I know we talked about the babysitter showed up to an empty house, called around, couldn't locate the family. That's when they were reported missing. On the 17th, which is the following day, they found the vehicle early in the morning at 1.50 a.m. Their bodies were discovered around 9.30 a.m. Here's the thing that made me really sad. Their bodies were located approximately 1.6 miles away from their vehicle. They were so close to their vehicle, right? Yeah. Another detail that came up is there was only one 85-ounce water bladder with the family, and it was empty. There were no other containers of water Hmm. and no other, like, filtration systems or anything that could have, like, made water safe to drink. And 85 ounces is only a little over half a gallon. It's like 0.66. Yeah. So it's like, they didn't bring much water, right? For, like, a family of essentially four if you include the dog. that That's not a lot of water at all. Yeah. So a couple of the theories before were the toxic algae. They also noted the toxic algae and said that six separate laboratories assisted in testing the water samples. 
The water was taken from several locations along the South Fork of the river, and it was positive for anatoxin A. They still don't have any evidence, though, that any of the humans ingested any of this water, and there's been no recorded deaths in humans connected with this anatoxin A. But it can be pretty deadly to animals, which is surprising because remember they said there was no like other animal deaths in the area that they could find? They also found that the closest mine was over two miles away from where the family was found. And there's no evidence that the family located or accessed any of the mines. I don't know what made them want to go out that day. I know in Arizona, I think I said it when we first brought this case up, it's illegal when it's over 100 degrees to bring your dogs. And I'm not obviously the child. You should just kind of, if a dog can't go, a child shouldn't go. But It's just wild to me that they'd want to go on such a hot day. My other thing is that like, you know, the child backpack things do not offer shade to the baby. Most of them. There are some that have the little canopy. Yeah. But even still, if you're in a place with zero tree coverage, the sun is going to get to the baby. Yeah. So my thing is, if it was heat, I'm saying they would have entered this area that had no tree coverage. Right. And they would see that with their eyes and go, not suitable she's going to get sunburned. And especially like with the heats rising, like I get like, don't get me wrong. Like I could certainly see like it's 75. Yeah. Right. How's it going to get to 100? But also like if you're used to like that area, you know how the weather works. Yeah. So I'm a little suspect of it. I'm not saying that one couldn't get hyperthermia from that. It's just it's hard for me to believe that this family died that way. Right. That the situation even occurred. Yeah. You know, like why I wouldn't want to be out there. I know even the months that it's starting to get a little warm. I'm like, "Mm, sorry, we're not doing that anymore. There's some trails that we like or uh, my husband goes on bike rides a lot. And when it gets to a certain degree, I'm like, no, Mm -hmm. it's not worth it. Also, for an experienced hiker, I'm just a little concerned. Why would he only bring that much water? Did he not plan on doing that full trail? Maybe he planned on just like taking a peek at it and then heading back to the car. Yeah. I wonder what his the actual intentions were for the family that day. I like to walk in parks sometimes, but I'm by no means like going on like crazy difficult trails. But they make little tabs that you can put in your water that sterilize river water. So I wonder if they had some of those. They used them all. And drank the river water and they used them all. And that's where they didn't find them because those you could easily put them in a pocket in your backpack or in your pants pocket or whatever. And continue to use it. I would imagine, though, that like if they were copiously hydrated, though, that their bodies would have shown that. Right, right. So it's it's really hard to tell. And I kind of like what you said with the dog, though, too. Like the dog would have been panting. And I know it's a no-no to let your animal drink from random water because of algae and weird stuff that they can get. But if it was like my dog looks really, really dehydrated. Yeah, I would have, you know. So I wonder if Oski did drink that water. But then it's just, it's still super weird because if you would have died from that, I feel like it would have been at a different time. They wouldn't all be so close together. It's the whole situation still weird. I'm hoping that there's more that comes of it. They did, though, in that press release, say it was a final press release. Yeah, I mean, my heart breaks for their family because this is not an answer. Like, it's really not. It's just a source for more questions. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really sad. Whole family. Yeah. So our next update has to do with Samuel Little. We covered him a few months ago. We talked about how he is America's most prolific serial killer. And one of the things that he did was he drew all of his victims. And some of them have not been identified. He was killing all over the country. So he drove from state to state. 
there have been investigators who have kind of like plotted where he was and when. And that has helped some local police identify possible victims. The last update we had, we discussed one of his victims that had been identified. Her name was Miriam Angela Chapman and her next of kin had been found. And so that was our last update. But Little is now the primary suspect in a new case. And it's the case of Clara Birdlong. So she was identified in September of 2021, but her remains had been found decades ago. Before they knew who she was, they referred to her as the Escatapa Jane Doe. Her remains were found in February of 1977 near what is now Interstate 10 and Highway 613. At the time, the medical examiner had concluded that she had died three to four months before her remains were found. This is a situation where authorities really tried to identify her. They did multiple facial reconstructions and computer composites trying to say, like, perhaps she looked like this. Maybe she looked like this to try to get people to recognize her. So, again, this was in Escatapa, Mississippi. People from there didn't recognize her. And we're going to get to why that was in a moment. Generally, law enforcement has confirmed that Little was in Jackson, which was where she was found when Claire was murdered. The Mississippi State Crime Lab and a DNA research facility worked together to try to make a family tree based on Clara's DNA, which they were calling her Jane Doe at that time. And they were able to find a really distant cousin that lived in Texas who didn't even know about that side of her family, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And so that cousin pointed the the primary investigator, Matt Hoggett, to her paternal grandmother, who at that point was 93. Wow. And she lived in LaFleur County, Mississippi. And she confirmed that she had a cousin who had went missing in the 70s. That gives me chills. Yeah. Just like years and years later. And think of she was old, right? Like 93 is pretty old. 93. Yeah. Like that's a long time to go and like be like, oh, you know, I do have a cousin who went missing in the 70s. Right. Yeah. So fortunately, another distant relative could also confirm that Clara matched the description of Jane Doe as well as the distant cousin's grandmother. So Hogan actually also found one of Clara's friends who said that she had lived in LaFleur and that Clara left LaFleur in 1970s with an African-American man who said he was passing through on his way to Florida. She left with him and she never was seen again. Wow. And investigators also figured out it was her through her family tree. They've also eliminated everybody else. Little is the primary suspect in her murder and glad that he no longer exists on this world. But it's sad because he can't confirm. Yeah. But I mean, could you imagine decades later, this grandmother thought that her cousin was gone forever. Maybe she went and started a new life and just to find out like she left and nobody knew who she was for years. That's crazy. Are they taking old pictures of her and looking at it compared to his pictures then? Because that would be like a really it's not like set in stone like that is her. But that would give me relief at least to be like, okay, yep, that's her. I know her story now. Yeah. In the articles that I saw, I did not see any photos of her or like any mention of that. But keep in mind, they also have all of those composite sketches so they could probably. Yeah. See if she looked relatively similar. Like, obviously, how your face fat kind of falls on your skeleton is going to change the way that you look. So the facial reconstruction in my brain can only be so accurate. But heartbreaking, but also closure. And we're going to talk about missing people in a little bit, too. But I found that it was really interesting that they were like, she went missing in the 70s and like she was in a different county. If those counties would have spoken to each other, perhaps this could have been solved many years ago when Little was still alive. True. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
That's wild. I mean, that that's so good that hopefully that family now knows what happened. But it just kind of sucks, too, that these are all distant relatives, you know, like none of her direct relatives knew what happened to her. And that makes my heart sad. Yeah. Like they just thought she left. Yeah. So another update we have is with Taryn Summers and Connie Ann Smith. And if you remember, Taryn Summers was found dead under the care of Connie Ann Smith. Her preliminary hearing occurred as scheduled on August 31st of 2021, and Smith was arraigned on September 13th, 2021. We found out that Smith said that she had went into Taryn's room to bring her a snack around 4 p.m. and that Taryn refused to eat. She said she went to check on Taryn at 5 p.m. and she was missing. She called the police two hours later. What was she doing in those two hours? She was caring for other smaller children. But, you know, a young child goes missing. You stop everything. Yeah. Yeah. Immediately. Immediately you should be calling and like freaking out. No. No. She'll be back. Like two hours? Sorry. Riles me up. So since there was other children at Smith's home, the investigators took custody of the children. They were asking for car seats from Smith. And she explicitly said to not look in the black Lexus because it wasn't working and she couldn't find the keys. What? Like, if you say don't look over there, like immediately I'm going to look over there. I'm looking over there. Yeah. And it also very much seemed like investigators were like, well, now we've got to find these keys. The keys had been placed on top of Smith's kitchen cabinets. Strange. Why would you do that? She's hiding something like that's just so, well, I don't want to say incriminating, but it is. Right. That is incriminating. No, like, don't go look here. Like, if you keep your keys there, like, that's weird. Okay. So a daycare worker said that Smith had dropped the kids off in Alexis. I thought it wasn't working. Magistrate Tyler Smith said there was probable cause to arraign Connie Smith on the concealment of evidence and failure to notify law enforcement of death charges. Matea Smith, a preschool teacher, was present when Smith picked up another child and heard her tell the child to be extra quiet so she didn't wake up Taryn. Taryn's head was tipped back like she was sleeping at that time. So just a lot of strange things happening around this case. And a lot of weird stories. Like, those stories don't make sense. I don't even know why she tried to pull them, I guess. You know? Smith has previously said that Taryn was sick. So it's possible that what the preschool teacher saw was her taking a nap because she didn't feel well. Right. Let's hope so. But that feels very bizarre. And I hope that what she saw was a sleeping child. A poor person. Yeah. And Smith's jury trial is set to begin in January of 2022. So, of course, as that comes up, we will talk about it more. So I hinted at it earlier, but we're going to talk a little bit about missing people in the United States. And when I say missing people, I mean kind of like some facts, because we all have this assumption of how missing person cases are handled by law enforcement. And in addition to being incredibly suspect of all Airbnb owners, I now just don't assume that anything is a police function unless explicitly said or that like anything is a standard police policy unless explicitly said. That's just one of the things I've taken away from True Creeps for over a year. Like, do not assume that law enforcement is going to be very advanced because they are not. (laughs) I just love that now you're afraid of Airbnbs. A while back, I had said like that would be the best, scariest horror movie is if it was like an Airbnb killer because you have access things. And I've noticed, too, on some of them that they send the code so freaking early that I'm like, um, could I get in tomorrow while someone's staying there? Like either that 
or they're not changing codes or they're giving you keys to use and you're making copies of keys. I just think that that would be the scariest horror movie ever. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I will say that our host gave us the code exactly at check-in time. So, and what we're referencing is that over the weekend, my best friend, he had his wedding reception. So we stayed closer to the reception so we could help it before and we could drink the night of and not worry about driving home because it's about like almost an hour away. And so we stayed in an Airbnb. It was beautiful. Photos look lovely. When I get in, there is a door to the basement that was not photographed and it's locked but from the other side. And so my mind went to so many negative places. And so like we get out to the car to like, because we're loading stuff in and like, because I don't want to say it when we're in there. And I'm like telling our other friend who stayed with us, was like, did you see that door? I need you to look at it. And he like looks at the door and he's like, it looks like they, it's just a door. And I was like, but are they living down there right now? Like, are they there while we are here? Yeah. I don't know why that rocked me because it wouldn't be altogether terrible if they were like living in that part of their house right like it's their house normally they'd note that though in the listing like live on property yeah like I purposely always filter to entire house because the last time that we didn't do that Ben found a place where we rented a room and we had we heard the guy like talking to his date telling her about his barbed wire tattoo that was you know and how when it grew you could see the whole tattoo and it looked a lot cooler did you leave that in the review like great place love to hear about your tattoo i would have <laughs> we learned so much about him but like i did not want that so found a place that was all by ourselves i'm paranoid about this door we are having our night great we come back it is bedtime we are about to turn off the lights there's this like big heavy leather ottoman at the bottom of the bed and i was like well, that needs to go in front of the door. So I put that in front of the door. I also, by the way, pick the bedroom that is furthest from the stairs. So our other friend gets killed first. And so I have this in front of the door. At first, I have it just a little bit because my goal isn't to block the door. It's to trip the intruder. Yeah, of course. Right? Like so that we know they come in. Ben's like, open the door. They could walk right in. I, In my head, what he said was, put it against the door. Don't do it at all. But I think he was just like, what are you doing? Why are you, what's happening right now? And I'm like, you don't understand how much murder I ingest. And so that goes against the door. He's like, okay, do you feel safe now? And I was like, no. And so I'm like, can we sleep with the light on? And he was like, no, I I can't sleep with the light on. Like, that'll stop the intruder. Yeah, that'll stop the intruder. He's like, our friend's going to get killed first. And I was like, not good enough. I don't know. So I... I have prescription situational anxiety medication. I have some of that. I'm trying to like self-soothe. Because at this point, I'm like very close to having an anxiety attack. Like I'm v- I'm like really stressed. And he's like, what's happening right now? And I'm like, I work from home. I very seldomly leave. I don't travel. I'm very scared. And so he's like, why don't you go and you read the reviews that people have left that are not dead? But do you know that they're not dead, Lindsay? I just need to ask that. And I need you. Can I tell you that as I'm saying this, I am thinking it through thinking like the second that we left, it was like, do you want to leave a review? And I said yes. And I was like filling it out on the way home and that she could have been murdering all these people, then taking their cell phones, then leaving a review. I sound like a lunatic. I am okay about it. But that was how I self-soothed and fell asleep. I'm glad I didn't think of this then. But sorry, Airbnb, we ruined your platform. (sighs) Okay, we're okay. We're okay. I'm okay. Everything's fine. But that's what I was referring to in terms of just feeling safe in an Airbnb. I'm no longer feeling great with that. 
But anywho, you know what? Let me add to that. Look up the TikToks about finding hidden cameras in Airbnbs. No. I know. Like, I, <laughs> I'm i on, like, all these little, like, Facebook deal groups because <laughs> of Amanda. And one of the things that I saw was, like, a camera detector. Yep. And I was like, should I? I really sat and thought about it for a minute. And then I was like, no, no, no. Because I just don't know how I would have handled that. I don't know what I would do if I was in a situation where there was a hidden camera. So it's just best if I don't know. We'll find you on the website later. Great. You'll see like a very unattractive photo of me, <laughs> like fifth photo video of me sitting on the floor on a towel doing my makeup with crazy eyes. I don't have time. I need to be pretty. That's what you're saying. It's nothing too enticing. Or the fact that I had our food delivered to the National Mall as opposed to our address because <laughs> I typed in drive instead of street. Where are you at the mall? Well, in the National Malls in D.C., it's like a big, like, grassy area. So it's not like a mall mall. Oh. <laughs> but it's like, there's like tons of benches. And so, like, the delivery driver calls and is like, <laughs> where are you? And I wasn't with Ben when he got the call because he was picking up something from Walmart. And so the driver was like, I'm here. Where are you? I don't see you. And, and he's like, just leave it on the bench. And the guy's like, there's a lot of benches here. And... <laughs> He's like, what do you mean? There's a lot of benches. And he's like, I'm at the National Mall. Where are you? And Ben's like, I'm not there. And he's like, well, where do I put your food? And Ben's like, I don't know, man. Like, I'm not there and I'm not going to be there. And so like after a few minutes of like, leave it on the bench, the guy was like, no. So they canceled our order and we got refunded. But like if he would have just taken a big bag and sat it on a park bench and left, people would have thought that it was like a bomb or something, right? Like you can't leave unattended bags in public places in D.C. Yeah. It just feels like it's a bad idea. So I'm sure the delivery driver was like, no, I'm not. I'm no, I'm not going to do this. Part of some weird plan. Yeah. Whatever weird delivery food plan. I know. I felt very bad. I felt very bad. That poor driver. I tried to like change my order in Grubhub so that he could then take it to us. But we were like a half hour away. And I was because I was like, I will tip you copiously for my error was like in my head, like with the appropriate action here. Right. Like, I've wasted your time. I've stressed you out. Can I give you more money as an apology? And they canceled the order, so I couldn't. But anywho, we're not talking about this Airbnb experience now that we already have. We're talking about missing people. And so in the context of missing people, when we talk about them, generally we're talking about you know the person who's missing. But we also talk about lackluster investigations by law enforcement or that families have had to hire private investigators. And we talk about our favorite, Tim Miller, sweetest, who helps locate people with his organization, Texas EquiSearch, which fully exists, as far as I'm concerned, because law enforcement does not have the resources to do what they need to do. So we talk about this a lot. So we kind of wanted to just like take a step back because we haven't talked about missing people investigations in a broad sense. Some states have adopted legislation that will require state police to enter DNA samples of missing persons or people who have died, but they don't know who they are, like our Jane Doe from before, into NamUs. We talked about this before as well, but we assume that there is a federal database that one could use. Therefore, everyone will use it because what a great resource to help you do your job. Yeah, that's thanks to movies and TV, though. Let me let me check it against the system. Like, what magic system is this? Yeah. Exactly. And so generally, a study of NamUs's data reflects that 75% of the missing persons are recovered alive, and only 13% of those cases have foul play suspected. 
So you hear missing person, like what we're thinking of is sensationalized people who have gone missing, which is fair, right? Like we're not going to be like, wow, Carol took a walk down the street and everybody bugged out, right? Like we're going to talk about the cases where the person hasn't been found. 25% of the active unidentified person cases in NamUs reflect deaths that were not a result of foul play, while 16% of the active unidentified person cases were victims of homicide which feels like a kind of a big population. I was reading this article and they were like, only 13% of the cases. And I was like, that still feels like a lot. It does. Yeah. As I kind of alluded to a moment ago, missing person cases are difficult for various reasons. But the first and foremost being is that you don't know whether that person left voluntarily. And so many times we hear they're a runaway And we'll get to that in a moment with the context of children and like legislation that's been passed. But it used to be that's like they're a runaway. So we don't have to do anything because you can choose to not be where you are. Right. And sometimes I'm saying for adults, but sometimes for children, like there are really good reasons to not be where people think you should be. Domestic violence, for example, that's a really good reason to want to disappear and to not want to be found. Right. Yeah. The exact opposite would be Brian Schaefer, who just disappeared one day. And we don't know whether it was voluntary or not. Yeah. So there's a lack of standardization and protocols on reporting and investigating. So not only is there not a uniform standard across the United States about where you have to enter information for adults. We'll get to it in a second that like our processes grew. Children, you have to. But adults, you don't have to depending on the jurisdiction. Sometimes it's also based on whether the person's found or not, right? But to me, that doesn't even make sense because person missing, DNA and system, that's how it should work. If the person's found, great. You click a box and say this person was found. Yeah, I think that's fair. In my brain, that's how it should work. But so you have this lack of standardization, which means that law enforcement throughout the country is going to handle things differently. Not only do they have different staff, different offices, different populations that they're dealing with. They have different policies. Like, what do they do when a person goes missing? If you're in an area where people tend to leave a lot, you might not go, oh, no, this person's missing. So there's also just a high volume of missing people. In addition to that, there's some ignorance about what tools there are to use. What federal databases can you use? Do they know them like the missing persons clearinghouse for that state or what other local options there are? This I do not like at all. This is one of like the worst general facts on missing people and unidentified remains that from this kind of batch of research. But a lot of jurisdictions will bury remains who are unidentified without collecting DNA samples, which that blows my mind. I don't understand how that is a thing. All I could think of is funding, right? Like it takes funding to be able to collect the sample and keep the sample. Yeah. And that's really, really unfair to that poor unidentified person. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I would rather police funds not target people or who are like smoking pot and to go ahead and test people who are unidentified so that their families can get closure. I do not care who you are or what you have done in this life. You do not deserve to be unidentified. That's a fair statement. And I mean that like blanket. Anyone. Anyone who's done any terrible thing because most people have someone who loves them. Even if they're a shitbird, garbage human, there's likely someone on this planet who wants to know where they are. There's a difference between, you know, some of the serial killers we've talked about where after they are put to death that they are buried as an unidentified grave. Yes, that is different than finding a body, not knowing who it is and burying it. 
Yes. So like, sure, there are reasons to still have unidentified graves, but the random person that they find deceased isn't one of them. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to talk about some systems and then... We'll move into some different standards for missing children versus adults. There's several federal databases that help law enforcement investigate missing persons, and that's CODIS. We've talked about that before. Next Generation Identification Systems and the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, VICAP. We've talked about that before. There's also no-cost national clearinghouses for missing persons and identified and unclaimed descendants. One example of this, I believe, would be NamUs. I want to think that there's state-level ones as well. Generally, they'll collect voluntary DNA from family members. So think your family member has been missing for 30 years. Technology is different. You bring it in a DNA sample so that maybe they can identify somebody who was previously unidentified. And generally, this DNA sample is only used for missing person cases. So it couldn't be used for criminal cases. When I first read that, I remember... Oh, many moons ago, we talked about Texas Killing Fields Unsolved, and we had spoken to a person who thinks that their dad was involved, and he tried to provide his DNA voluntarily to go into CODIS. But unfortunately, you can't volunteer DNA for CODIS at this point. I think in the future, that might change. It should, because if he's willing to give it, and that could potentially solve something that's happened... Like, why not? Like, why not do it? I don't. He's willing. I think if there is a trend to start being able to subpoena or there being some legal mechanism to take DNA that's submitted to ancestry websites, then you should be able to obviously just go ahead and hand your DNA over. Right. Like if you're going to take it the hard way. Yeah. You might as well take it the easy way, too, I guess. I mean, that's just my mentality. But as of 2018, and I didn't see anything more current than that in terms of like this next part, but there's not a standard for what it means to be a missing person. I find that really interesting because you think like, well, there has there's 48 hours before you can report. That's not a thing. Yep. Different jurisdictions used to have those minimums, but they don't really exist anymore. And that's partially because if my husband doesn't come home from work and I know that he doesn't have anything else going on, I'm going to call around and see if I can find him. If I can't, something's wrong. You know your people and you know like vaguely where they should be. And if they don't show up when they should, you should be able to start a search then versus two days from now. Right. But so because we don't have a national standard for what a missing person is, it's kind of hard to have a universal standard for investigating or creating policies, practices or protocols based on how to find a missing person. So let's move into just like some of the different reporting structures. So in 1967, the United States government established the NCIC to track and report crimes. Soon after, they added a section to add information for missing person cases. So 67 is a starting point, which isn't that long ago in my brain, right? No. 1982, the Missing Children's Act is is passed and it requires local law enforcement to upload every report of a missing child to the NCIC. Good which 1982 feels way too recent for that to be a thing. Yeah. Two years later, the Missing Children's Assistant Act then places the U.S. Department of Justice as the lead federal agency to lead efforts for missing children. It also funded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And then in 2005, NamUs was developed. And if you aren't familiar with NamUs, NamUs has missing persons, but also unidentified remains. We talk about this in our Texas Killing Fields Unsolved, but it is a dark website to visit. Be careful. Yeah. If you aren't one that can stomach that, it's hard. I assumed foolishly and naively that the unidentified remains section would have composite sketches. 
that is not all they have. They have pictures of people, of the remains as they were found, uh-huh. which is horrifying and sad. But it's good that they exist because, you know, somebody who's missing their family member, maybe they'll find them this way. Collecting data is good, in my opinion. And another interesting wrinkle is that the age in which a person is a child versus an adult in the realm of missing people varies. For federal laws, in 1990, the National Child Search Assistant Act was passed, and this basically said reports of missing children must be uploaded to NCIC. From what I understood, before it was like, you have to upload it. Then it was like, you have to upload this. And they're like kind of like tapping their wrists like Judge Judy being like, you got to do this like as it's happening. And it also said that anyone under 17 was a child. So that's who it would apply to. Then in 2003, Suzanne's Law, which is also known as the Prosecutorial Remedies and Other Tools to End the Exploitation of Children Today Act, was passed. And that expanded the age of children to 21. There's also the Amber Alert System, which I'm sure you're very aware of it disseminates information on missing children to the public. At this point, 49 states and D.C. require missing children to be reported. Just generally, like you have to report a missing child. Wyoming is the outlier. It seems like a strange thing to not have. It's a really weird thing. Like, I'm not going to do this. What state would say no? Yeah, I'm hoping it's we haven't had an issue with people doing it. Still weird. Just do it. Still weird. Yeah, just get it on the books. Let's just get it done. Let's have all 50 states. And honestly, you know what? While we're at it, make D.C. a state. It's not relevant, (laughs) but make them a state. 51 states. So 43 states also require the reporting of missing children who are located, which I think is also interesting. We talk about like if you're located, meh, right? But also there needs to be some record of kids going missing. Yeah. Even if they're found. Well, even think about it. If they're found in a certain location or it's happened multiple times, then they can look and be like, okay, that kid went there last time. Maybe they went there or something similar to that. Yeah. And we know that criminals escalate. So it could be that the first six times a child's taken and returned and it's the seventh that they're not. So having that information is vital. Let's pivot to missing adults, which is not as proactive. There's no federal laws that govern reporting or investigation of missing adults, which means there's no federally mandated protocol, which isn't necessarily surprising, right? Because that's like a local thing you would want. And at this point, most states, it's optional that law enforcement has to add information into national databases, which I hate. There's only a handful of states that mandate it. And I, I just that makes me very angry. There's also the silver alert system. And we're actually going to talk about that in a little bit as well. But generally, the silver alert system is for people who have dementia or another issue where there's some concern that their mental state will play into whether they're safe on their own. It also applies to, I believe, adults who are over 65 and have dementia. Some states it's different, but it varies. But there is a system for adults. It makes sense that they wouldn't have one for adults like so-and-so was home by 15 minutes late. Like you do not need to send like an alert out to the nation for that. Right. But it's interesting, too. Right. Because before we were talking about law enforcement adding information to national databases. But in some states, you aren't required to report missing adults. That seems off, too. If someone's missing. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be someone that cares enough to report him. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, but fortunately, 37 of the 50 states do have them. And of those states, the way that they're reported and the way that they're required to report vary. Some don't even specify how you have to report it. Yeah. 
let's kind of step back. And so we talk about missing people a lot. And most people are not thinking like, oh, I only care about this type of missing person. But the national discourse right now makes it very much seem like what we care about when we talk about missing people for first and foremost is white women. My heart breaks for Gabby Petito's parents. It really does. Her case is terrible and awful. And she's kind of a household name right now. We're about to talk about three separate cases that occurred around the same time as hers that do not have the same coverage, period. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to kind of look at at statistics and like, how do missing people cases work? Because we've heard so many times the families hired a private investigator. They pushed law enforcement. They had a nonprofit help them. Or they hired a publicist for some. Oh, I get it. I get it. I don't hate them, but I hate the idea of it. So let's just talk about some very unpleasant stats. Indigenous women and girls are murdered at a rate that's 10 times higher than all other ethnicities. Let that sink in for a minute. Yeah, that that hurts my heart. Yeah, I mean, it's just unacceptable, I think, is is the way to discuss it. It is unacceptable. In 2016, of the 5,716 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, only 116 were logged in the Department of Justice's database. That's embarrassing. And quick math on that, that's just 2% of the cases. That's absolutely embarrassing, especially for our country that loves to boast about being so great. And like, this is what's happening within our country is certain people are cared about more than others because of their skin or their background or their sexuality. You know, it's disgusting. Yeah, it it really is. And when you're talking just missing persons cases, 35% of cases are Black people. But Black people only comprise 13% of the U.S. population. And that's a really stark number because at first when you hear 35, you're like, hmm, that's not the majority. But when you're looking at it in proportion to the population of Black people in our country, that's not okay. And the fact that some cases are covered more than others, like the fact that you the the fact that most people know Gabby's name speaks volumes. And so that's one of the reasons why we decided categorically to not cover Gabby's case, because we think that there's been enough on it. Yeah, there's a lot out there on her case. And like Lindsay said, we both feel for her family, her friends, all of her loved ones that are going through hell right now. And I mean, I I am reading about the case daily. You know, I'm looking up all the updates. I'm looking at the things that they're finding now and I'm seeing where people have dropped the ball and that's hurting my heart. But because these other people haven't been in the spotlight and some of them don't really have a lot of people or law enforcement really doing their jobs to help them, we think it's really, really important. And then on top of it, something that I told Lindsay I'm going to do because these numbers are ridiculous, right? These numbers are awful. When this episode comes out, I would love for every person, if they're able to, to look up one missing person in their area because unfortunately there is one, right? And print out their missing persons flyer and put it somewhere in public. Do something. Uh, I told Lindsay we're recording this before Halloween. I printed out the next two cases that we're going to talk about and I'm going to take them with us to any of our Halloween festivities because we're going to go to a couple public places and... They very well could have seen these people. Yeah. So the first person we're going to talk about is actually an update. So we've talked about him before, but we're going to talk about Daniel Robinson. Yeah. And we talked about him. He's missing from Buckeye, Arizona since June 23rd, 2021. As you guys probably remember, his vehicle was recovered, but he was not. So David Robinson, who's Daniel's father, created a change.org petition. 
And this petition has a lot of information. David feels that he has done more to find Daniel than law enforcement has. And we've seen that a number of times in a lot of the cases that we've looked at, right? I mean, like we said, yeah, hiring a fucking publicist for some of the cases we've talked about. That's not something someone should have to do. So, right. I mean, also, how many times have you seen statements from the family's attorney? Why would they need to retain an attorney? Right. Why do they need to have an advocate who's a spokesperson for them? And all of that's a lot of money, you know, like that's a lot of money. Yes. A lot of these cases that we've been talking about lately have to do GoFundMes to be able to find their loved one and hope that like out of the generosity of random people, they'll be able to have enough funds to find someone they love. That's sickening, right? Yeah. So in the petition, David says Buckeye PD's investigation has not gathered any evidence of their own. And they're unwilling to move beyond their theory, which leads to non-action on their part. The petition is a step in the direction to holding Buckeye PD accountable and make sure that this case is taken seriously. So this next fact like stressed me out because, again, this isn't terribly far from my house either. During the seven searches organized through the Find Daniel website, so his father and, you know, people that have been helping have been organizing these, they have recovered the remains of about six people, right, in the desert. I don't like it. It's awful. Do they know who they are? I didn't see anything. It's just on the petition. So he didn't name them. So the petition also says that Buckeye PD lacks the training to effectively conduct searches for missing persons and that hopefully it can help start the process of having funds reallocated to programs to focus solely on missing persons, missing and exploited children and identifying remains found in the desert. Because like Lindsay talks about all the time, I live in hell right? Like it is terrible here. Desert, it's really, really hot. And realistically, like where he's saying reallocate funds kind of sounds like what a lot of the people that are saying defund the police mean. Yeah. Right? Like in my head, I kind of hate the term defund the police because it really does have like a negative tinge to it, right? It's, It's triggering for people because they assume that defund the police means abolish the police. Yeah. And certainly some people do mean that, But from what I understand, like the larger scope does not. Yeah. And maybe I'm reading into his petition differently than he wanted it to be read. So if so, like, I don't mean to tie it to this case at all. But reallocating funds to help certain programs makes sense to me, right? Like, I don't expect a police officer to be trained to run around in 115 degree middle of the desert and know how to, you know, locate human remains or clues or, you know, whatever else they've been finding out there, I don't expect that from every single individual on a police force, right? Like that, that's not really fair to expect them to be able to do every single thing. But if they can't do it, or they can't be trained to do it, or, you know, they might be unwilling to do it, maybe they love the rest of their job, but that's hard to do, then I feel like there should be a program or a group of people that are trained and effective in doing this work, right? Yeah, no, and it absolutely makes sense. And so in the nonprofit world, there are nonprofits that basically what they do is they work as an arm of the local government. And they're like, they're thought of as quasi-governmental nonprofits, where basically what they do is they run off of grants provided by the government or local local governments. I personally, I had an externship at one where like six different counties in the state of Maryland gave them grants to do X, Y, Z. And that's how they were funded. There's precedent for local governments outsourcing things that are required and expected of local government. 
So something like this, like search and rescue. I think another good example would be, you know, say you have somebody who's in mental distress. It might not be that the police are the best people to come out there, but they're likely who you're going to call. So what if when you called 911, they listened to what your problem was and they sent the appropriate type of person to go? Maybe what you need is like an emergency mental health worker that can help you access emergency services for mental health or they they send you over to the people who specialize in missing people. You know, they have the special skill set to search the terrain of that area, right? Because, you know, even Maryland versus Arizona, we would need very different search teams, right? Like you need desert people. We likely need more water people. Yeah, and that's fair. I I believe that there are certain groups that do work. It's not even just nonprofit that work to do things like this in certain areas, but they're not everywhere. Mm-hmm. Or they're not affordable to some people, which is kind of shitty, right? Like, that's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the taxes you pay. You should think that some level of policing is there. Your person goes missing. That feels like you should be able to like trust government. Like You shouldn't have to have a rainy day fund for what if your spouse goes missing or your child goes missing or your parent or whomever. Like It makes me think that you would need like missing person insurance. Yeah. That phrase makes me really sad. Don't let someone get that idea. I know. As I said it, I was like, oh, some like swarmy human is going to be like, missing person insurance, you're damn right. Yeah, don't do that. That's gross. But no, and again, I didn't mean to take away from Daniel's case at all, but I feel like some of those words there, it brought this conversation to mind. Absolutely. But it's just wild to me that they're dropping the ball so hard here. But then on the other side of it, I'm like, I couldn't go in the desert and be successful, right? Like I could be like, that looks suspicious, but I wouldn't know where to begin. I wouldn't know what to do. It would be really hard. So I I see it both ways. There have been calls for Daniel's investigation to be changed from a missing person to a criminal investigation, which would then give it more effort, right? Like it would give more efforts for a criminal investigation, which also kind of like what Lindsay was just talking about. That's really sad. That has to be a criminal investigation rather than a missing person's to get the attention that it needs. Yeah, that to be able to trigger protocols and policies and practices that are investigative in nature, it has to be called this other thing, which I'm like, I don't care what you call it. Call it an aardvark. Find him. It's still the same person. Yeah. Interestingly, David discusses the investigation towards the end of the petition. And there's a few things that just frustrated me. So one, before Daniel's Jeep was found, Buckeye PD did two confirmed searches that included the area where Daniel was last seen and where the vehicle was later discovered. Both searches resulted in no findings of any kind, according to the petition. Hmm. Which is wild to me, right? Like, there's a Jeep? You overlooked a Jeep? Like, I could see a piece of clothing. Or it wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's weird to me. Did it come up later? What what happened with it? But remember, we talked about the black box, too. I don't know if that would give, like, specific times. I don't know. In addition, the same area already searched by police is also where David and his organizers found the remains of the six people. So did they overlook all of these people? I doubt all six of these people went missing and died in between Daniel being gone, right? When you say area, do you mean like one square mile or like 20 miles of desert? It's a very vast, vast area. Okay, so we're not talking like within like a 10 by 10 foot area. We're talking about in this like expanse of desert, six sets of remains are found. Okay. 
Yeah. And if you look at the Find Daniel website, which we've posted before, it has like a map of what they've searched, what they plan on searching. And it looked like last time I checked it, they're still organizing searches, which again, can you imagine having to do this over and over and over? Like his dad's working so hard to find him. So David's search has also recovered evidence that backs up to the data taken from the vehicle's black box. The Buckeye detectives told David that the data from the box showed that Daniel was driving in excess of 30 plus miles per hour at the point of impact and that the airbags deployed because of the rollover, right? So that's what they told David at first. Then remember, he hired a private investigator. Private investigator then read the same information and had an entirely different story of what happened based off of this information. They said that Daniel was traveling under 30 miles per hour. Also, they found that the car was cranked in excess of 40 times after the initial impact that caused the airbags to deploy. So cranking the engine means turning the engine's crankshaft that rotates the engine to power itself. So yeah, attempting to turn it on, right? Yeah. So that's weird, right? Did he crash? And he's like, please start, please start, please start. Something happened. Yeah. The Jeep was driven over seven miles after the initial crash and the airbag deployment. So the crash happened, airbags deployed, it was driven again. Suspicious, right? The damage on the Jeep was not consistent with where it was found, nor did it match the terrain of the desert where it was found. This makes me so fucking mad because just hearing all of this, you're like, right? How could you not think that something is askew here? So the private investigator found that the Jeep was staged. That's their thoughts. And that a possible crime has occurred. And again, this is all from the petition. I have not seen any reports released. And that, that's kind of another thing as to how different these cases are, right? Because Daniels, I'm looking and I'm like, okay, I need to find some of this information. Where can I find what Buckeye PD did? What, what any of this is? And I'm not finding much. I'm finding very basic details. David's the one that's getting this information out there. So it's from the petition. And again, like, I don't want to say he's incorrect in that way because his only goal is to find his child, right? So like, why would he put incorrect information out there to the world? But luckily, I have seen Daniel's case discussed more as Gabby's case went viral. But even yesterday, I kind of looked again for more updates just to see before we talked about this. Mm -hmm. Even when I searched his name and clicked on news, the earliest news coverage that I could find was from three weeks ago. Which is bananas. It's absolutely bananas to me. Yeah. So this petition, we did share it. Uh, we'll probably share it again once this episode comes out. Absolutely. But it just made me so incredibly sad that all of this information is coming out. And, you know, and again, the Buckeye police told him an entirely different story from the exact same piece of information, which is very strange. Is it that one of them, right? One of them had to have misread this information. I don't know who. Yeah. But... If they can't read this information, maybe it's not, it shouldn't be their job to read it. You know, if they're not, you can't go up to any police officer and be like, hey, read this black box information. Like, I don't know. I don't see that daily. I doubt they see it daily. At least I'm not a police officer. I don't know. But that just seems like a lot of information to pin on one person to understand, right? Yeah. And I mean, like, I don't know how they analyze that. It could be that they sent it out for like a reading of some sort. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know how that works. But I mean, for me, it's not even let's even take the black box aside. Let's put that they searched the area where his Jeep was found a total of three times. One time not there. Two times not there. Third time there. And when you add that to the damage on the Jeep that didn't match where it was. Seems really weird. Your like spidey senses should be tingling. 
you should be like, hmm, this is weird. And it feels a lot like they're just like wiping their hands and going, nothing for us to do. And like moving away from it, being like, I don't feel like it. Exactly. We're not seeing reports and we're not seeing statements. Makes it a little bit worse, right? Because it would be one thing if they had press releases that were like, we are organizing the search for Daniel. This is what we're doing. If you'd like to help, here's how. X, Y, Z. You've seen that from police departments before. It would not be altogether strange to see that. It would not be strange if they had some different type of conclusion for them to put it in a press release and release that, especially if it's not a criminal investigation at this point. There's no, there's no reason to withhold it. Yeah. So if you do live in Arizona and this is one case that you would like to share, you can go to pleasehelpfinddaniel.com and you can print his missing persons flyers and see any of the updates that they post. Yeah. So we're going to move into the new cases that we're going to discuss this episode. There's three of them. The first is that of Jelani Day. And so he was last seen on August 24th in Bloomington, Illinois, and he was going into a cannabis dispensary. He was 25 years old and he was going to Illinois State to get his master's degree in speech pathology. And there were security images that were released of him that day that show what he was wearing. The next day, his family reports him missing. They last talked to him on the 23rd, and he didn't attend class for a few days. On August 26th, his 2010 Chrysler 300 was found about an hour north in Peru, which is 60 miles away from where he lived. And it was in the woods behind a YMCA and in the middle of a residential community. Strange. The license plate had been removed, and the clothes that he had been wearing on that surveillance tape from the 24th were in the car which generally you're not carrying your clothes around, right? Well, it seems weird that if he disappeared that day, like one, why would he, I mean, for the day's outfit normally, right? Like you wear it the entire day and then no one saw him after that. So it's just like, when did he change? Was it that day? Was it the following day? Where was he? Why was he there? And especially where it was, I guess it looked like a um, dead end. Like if you didn't know that area, it's just a very strange place to leave a vehicle. Yeah. Well, and also, why was his license plate off? That's strange, too. Yeah, no one does that to their own car. No one does that. It's also it's such a bitch to get it off and put it back on. I would absolutely not. So on August 27th and throughout that weekend, students at, at his school distributed missing persons flyers trying to help find him. Because at this point, they're, they're just looking for him because they found the car and that's weird, right? But he's not in it. But his clothes were in it. So odd. August 30th, his family started a GoFundMe so that they could provide resources for the search and they offered a $25,000 reward. You know something about a missing person? You just speak up. You shouldn't need to get paid to be a decent human. So on August 31st, his last known whereabouts were released and authorities asked for anyone who saw him or his vehicle to call with information. So the next day on September 1st, his mother, Carmen, and a group looked around the area that he was last seen to see if they could find any clues, which you should not have to do that. It should be a crime scene. That's how it feels to me. Over the next few days, hundreds of people gather to support the search efforts. On September 4th, authorities find a body off the south bank of the Illinois River, east of the 251 Bridge in LaSalle County. They say it could take weeks to identify the body, and the body was found in a severe state of decomposition, about a mile away from where the car was found. So this is just a mile from where the car is, right? You would think that they would search the surrounding areas, especially if you know there's bodies of water. So around the same time that this body has been discovered, Jolani's wallet was found about a half mile away from where his car was found, which was a mile and a half away from the body. And it was kind of somewhat in the bushes, according to investigators. 
So they also discovered a lanyard of his and some clothes, but they were found in separate locations. So wallet in a bush, lanyard someplace else, clothes here, clothes there, car is a half a mile away. Bizarre. So on September 20th, Bloomington Police Department says that they are still investigating the case and were collecting and analyzing physical and digital evidence, as well as conducting interviews with witnesses. On September 23rd, the LaSalle County coroner identified the body that had been found on September 4th as Jelani Day. But the cause of death was not determined because they were pending further investigation and toxicology testing. So in October, more details about his death were released and prepare to be annoyed and angry with us. The coroner didn't find any evidence of intoxication or injury in the forensic autopsy. There were no signs of assault, altercation, or strangulation, and it's still unknown how he ended up in the river. His cause of death was listed as drowning, according to the LaSalle County Coroner's Office. So let's just backtrack a little bit. We're saying that his clothing and lanyard are off someplace. He's got a wallet in a bush, a half mile down. There's his car. So takes the license plate off of the car inexplicably, then wanders a mile down to the river and drowns. Is that like their working theory? Because that makes zero sense. Taking a license plate off a car means that you don't want it identified. Yes. Right? Exactly. So why would he not want his car identified? Exactly. That's weird. And why would he not want himself identified from his wallet and lanyard? And just keep in mind, because those items were a pretty significant distance away, they wouldn't be automatically assumed with the car that had been abandoned. You could think those were from a robbery or anything. So again, the coroner said that he died of drowning and his family thinks otherwise and think that there's a lot more to this story. So they suspect foul play for a number of reasons. And some of them are things that we've already discussed, like his belongings being found scattered away from where his body was found, his ID lanyard being found across the river from his body, and then the items that were discussed when they found the car. So clothing was also found further east along the river near the bridge. And it's not just that his car is in Peru. It's that he doesn't have any ties to that area. So there's not a reason for him to be in that area broadly. It's strange that he would be there and then also that he would drive his car to that particular spot. Right. Like if he had a friend there, right, or someone he was going to school with or something like that, that would make sense why he would go. Yeah. Literally any reason. But there are no ties. And I want to say that was from his mom. Like there's no ties that he has there. So like, why would he go there? Yeah. And so as we mentioned before, his body was decomposed. And if you've watched true crime documentaries or if you've heard us or any other podcast talk about bodies that are found in water, bodies decompose much quicker in the water. It's it's a different way of decomposition. And so but because his body was so decomposed, his mother doesn't think that the coroner could actually say with certainty that there was no evidence of injury, such as manual strangulation and assault or altercation, sharp, blunt or gunshot injury, infections, tumors, natural disease, congenital abnormalities or significant drug intoxication, which that's obviously a quote from the coroner's report. But so his mom's not buying it because how could you say all those things if the body is so decomposed? Exactly. Especially for things like strangulation. I don't see how you could ascertain that. Again, a weird thing that Amanda and I can now do is kind of like we can talk a little bit about decomposition and like what you can identify and what you can't based on Texas killing field victims. Because sometimes the rate at which they're found, you know, they're found months later in in harsh weather and like your skin's not going to show that. 
unless the implement is left there, you're not always going to know the cause of death. We talked about two of some of Samuel Little's victims. A lot of them were marked as they thought they were overdoses because of the population that it was. They thought the person had died from exposure because they were homeless. Many reasons, but a lot of times they had actually died from being strangled to death. But because their body was in an advanced state of decomp, they assumed it's not that because they couldn't say. And so ruling it out feels wrong. It does. Exactly. Yeah. So the coroner even wrote the examination was suboptimal based on the level of decomposition over a week in the hot summer weather. And this is just truly awful. But the family attorney, Hallie Besner, said his organs were, quote, completely liquid. Which that doesn't leave you much. Like you can't test a lot. His mother, Carmen, said to CNN, quote, he doesn't have any skin to determine bruising. So none of this makes sense. And you want to tell me there's no physical trauma done to my child. Her interviews, like she is passionate about finding answers. As she should be. And she deserves it. It's it's insane that they're just like, nothing could have happened. Yeah. He just ended up in the river and it's like, no, something happened. No one does all of this. It's also brought up that he was an avid swimmer. So it's bizarre that he would drown. So also his mother said, so Jelani ended up there against his will. He ended up in that river against his will. He was drowned against his will. So that is all equivalent to murder. I agree. I also agree. She has commissioned two independent autopsies. She would also like the investigation to be taken over by state or federal authorities rather than local law enforcement. And she said that there's more evidence out there showing how her son got from Bloomington to Peru. If only someone would look. Congressman Bobby Rush wrote a letter to the attorney general and the FBI director calling on them to investigate the disappearance and death of Jelani. A spokesperson for the FBI said that they were in contact with the Peru Police Department and have offered their services. And as we know, you have to be invited in kind of like a vampire. So the FBI would not be the lead investigative agency unless there was a suspicion of a federal crime, though. So that's the other portion to like keep in mind. The Peru Police Department wrote to CNN, letting them know that they are still working on it. Quote, there are hundreds of hours of video to look through, numerous follow-ups to conduct, and a plethora of social media, bank records, phone records, and other pieces of information to investigate. And that's all to say that now his cause of death being drowning, okay, maybe he drowned. But to me, this sounds like there is a criminal investigation occurring, as opposed to Daniel's case where there's no criminal investigation happening. They're like, what could we do versus here? They're like, we're doing something, which is not the bar by any means. But yeah, at least there's that, I guess. But in the same respect, like if the FBI is willing to help, let them help go through those hundreds of hours of footage. Let them go help with follow ups. Yeah. And again, he doesn't a household name, right? Like while he was missing. No. And that's unfortunate that we we didn't know, you know, like it wasn't shared as much. It wasn't talked about as much. And then also, it sounds like his investigation is taking a lot longer. And mind you, they have different footages to review, which is going to take time, right? Like I get that. Mm -hmm. But also the way that she's pleading for help makes it seem like it's not moving as fast as it could be. And I understand like a family's gonna be like, I want answers and I want it now. But also what his body was identified in September. I think the other thing, too, is that we know from time and time again and case after case that this pressure she is applying is what is required 
to get justice for your family member. Exactly. And we learned that. Like, keep it up. And I hate that. You should not have to be guilted into doing your job. You should do your job because hopefully you took that to do good for your community, (laughs) protect people. Well, and what you just said, what you just said about having to keep it in the media, too. What also hurts my heart is this is a grieving mother, right? Like she lost her little boy. I mean, he's not a little boy, but she lost her little boy. Yeah. And instead of being able to just grieve properly and hurt and be angry and all of that, she has to do it publicly in order to keep the search going. Exactly. And that's just horrific. That's sad to me. Yeah. And again, the way she speaks, everyone should listen to her because she speaks with a lot of heart. And it's like when I watched some of the interviews, I was like, where am I going to help figure this out? You know, like I want to go. It's very far from me. But she's just very passionate. And I really, really hope that they're able to find some more information as to who did this to him, because I really don't think he did it to himself. Absolutely. I agree. So another missing person that I want to talk about in this case also is from Arizona. And this is another one that I printed out some flyers because I'm like, where I'm going, hopefully someone will be able to find him. And his name is Najib Monsif. And he goes by Juby which I love the name Juby. He was last seen on September 22nd, 2021, and he disappeared from Scottsdale, Arizona. He was last seen northeast of Frank Lloyd Wright and Via Linda. According to his sister's Instagram, which is Josie Monsif, he went missing from his father's home on September 23rd and was last seen around 2 a.m. His father said that he fell asleep downstairs in the home the night that Juby went missing. He told police that he woke up around 2 a.m. when he heard his son throw away food and he went back to sleep. He woke up five hours later and Juby was nowhere to be found. There was no signs of forced entry. Juby is a 20-year-old Middle Eastern male. He's about 5'10 to 6 feet tall. He's a thin build and he's approximately 100 pounds. He's believed to be wearing dark clothing, but clearly he could have changed by now. It's been a while. He does not have a cell phone. He wears moccasins that cause him to shuffle when he walks. In one of the interviews, his sister said that he has like a distinct shuffle. He often pulls his shirt to cover up his face. There's a few pictures that are online, but he'll grab like the collar of his shirt and put it kind of over his nose. So it's just a couple of mannerisms that if you see a person that might be him, watch for a second, because if he starts doing some of this, you know it's him. He's described as innocent and vulnerable by his family and also playful, compassionate, and being a gentle young man that loves kids and animals. He's also on the autism spectrum with the mental capacity of an eight-year-old. His family fears that he may be in danger. His sister, Josie, did an interview and she discussed that search dogs did lead to uh, local Albertsons, but there's no trace of him on any of the surveillance cameras, so they don't believe that that's true. Yeah. She was asked also, like, well, would he ask for help? She says, yes, he would ask for help if it was up to him because he would want to come home. But also, who knows what kind of situation he's in, if he's actually able to do so. He's never been without a family member or caretaker. So this is his first time on his own. And they're very, very worried. She begs that people don't stop talking about him to please keep your eyes peeled for him. If you see him, please stay with him and do not leave his side. Call police immediately. If you want to know more about his disappearance, about what he looks like, anything, there's videos of him. There's a Facebook group called Finding Juby Monsieve, and there are flyers on the Facebook group as well that you can print out and pass out. The family suspects that he was abducted, and Scottsdale PD confirmed that they've received multiple tips and possible sightings of Juby around Scottsdale. However, nothing's come of it yet. 
The FBI, Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, and the state authorities are also working on the case. One source says that Juby repeated an ominous remark days leading up to him disappearing. Yeah. And that he said this phrase to his father and his brother on separate occasions. He said, you're never going to see me again. My first thought is maybe he got upset about something and ran away, right? It sounds like he was upset about something. However, the family said that he wasn't physically or mentally capable of running away on his own volition. So it's just sad. It's sad that he's just gone. Lindsay said it earlier, but there is an active silver alert in Arizona for him. And I did want to look up just for Arizona. In Arizona, a silver alert is activated when a person with a specific cognitive or developmental disability disappears or a person over 65 goes missing. So it could be either. And where I am, I'm kind of by a big retirement area. So unfortunately, I see these come up a lot. Yeah. There is also a GoFundMe set up for the family to help with search efforts and other resources to bring them home. Their Facebook group is a great resource, like I said. And they are organizing a lot, including hiring a private forensic specialist, a private investigator. They're trying to get his flyer out. They're trying to get billboards made. They're trying to get his flyer to like local events. Like right now, the fair's in town. They're trying to get it there. And they're also asking for volunteers to hand out flyers at social events and get his picture out there on social media. We've shared his poster already, but we'll probably share it again. So if you see it, share it, especially if you're in Arizona. Yeah, it is heartbreaking. And I really hope that he is found. So the last case we're going to talk about today, it's the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. And as a note, I'm going to talk about it as we get into this, too. We're not going to go through all the intricacies of this case, partially because this is a very long episode. But there was some interesting developments in this case that we thought were really worthy of having a bit of a discussion about. So just as a very brief description of kind of what happened. On August 25th of 2020, Kyle Rittenhouse attended protests with an AR-15 style rifle. And he said that he was there so that he could protect local businesses from looting. As a side note, if you hear, if you are offended by looting more than you are offended by the murder of black men by police officers, you might need to sit with that. And I say that because I had a lot of people who I love and respect say, I don't care if people protest, just don't loot. I've said it before. I will say it again. You are innocent until proven guilty in our country. I do not care if you were running from the scene of a crime, even if it was a really terrible and awful crime. Our justice system works the way it does so that we don't just kill people. And it is a systematic problem if the people who are always killed are always black. That's not an accident. It is a symptom of a sick system. And so I think that's important to discuss in just the context of looting. I think it's an important thing to say is that property damage is not more important than human damage, period. I think that's fair. If someone is stealing, like, I don't care what they're doing, it shouldn't end their life. And like Lindsay said, there is a system. You know, if someone does something wrong, we would hope that this system that we all have in place for a reason, right, would then have some sort of hearings, trials, all those fun things, right, to figure out, did they do it? Why did they do it? How did they do it? Were they guilty? Were they not guilty? Then give them a proper sentencing. And also looting as a form of protest, one could consider it a purposeful property damage to highlight a systemic break. Because if you are frustrated by that property damage, you kind of have to sit with that discomfort and go, why does that matter more? Why does that make my skin crawl? 
So I'll step down off of my soapbox and we'll get back to Kyle Rittenhouse. So again, August 25th, 2020, he attended protests with an AR-15 style rifle, claiming that he was doing so to protect local businesses from looting. There were protests organized after Jacob Blake, who was just 29 years old and was a black man, was shot by a white police officer. So let's talk about what happened the evening of the 25th. During the course of the evening, Kyle Rittenhouse shot three people, killing two. He killed 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum and 26-year-old Anthony Huber. He also wounded Gage Grosskreutz. He claimed self-defense. The night of the shooting, he went willingly to police when they arrived at the scene. He approached with his arms up, but touched his firearm multiple times as he approached. You cannot tell me that if he was a different skin color, if he approached law enforcement with an AR-15 that was basically, it was like strapped across his chest, that he would be approached with nonviolence. I do not believe it, just categorically. So he was allowed to pass through the police barricade and they allowed him to leave the scene. And one of the police officers said, you with a long gun, don't come down here. This area is closed. The sheriff said that officers at the scene didn't understand that Kyle was trying to turn himself in. This is despite shouts of people around going, he just shot someone. He shot them. Like different people were crying this out, but they were confused because this man with a giant gun strapped to his chest couldn't possibly be doing anything wrong. And he's young. And he's young. He's got a baby face. He looks like he's 14. He's older than that, but he looks like he's 14. He does. So later that night, he went to the police station and he turned himself in. During interviews with police, he was cycling through mental anguish. Like he was throwing up and screaming and crying. And at one point he said, I shot two white kids. Why does it matter that they're white, Kyle? Shot two people. Two human beings. (sighs) Yes. Yes. I shot three human beings. Well, three. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I shot three human beings. And also from descriptions, it's pretty clear that he discharged his gun more than three times. Which is scary in itself. You know, like that's frightening. Exactly. And so as we mentioned, this has been a really full episode. So we can't go into the intricacies of the case, but we did want to discuss a very troubling decision by the trial court judge. In the pre-trial hearings, Rittenhouse's attorneys argue that using the term victim in relation to the people he shot is too prejudicial because Rittenhouse is claiming self-defense. Literally, fuck off. The presiding judge, Judge Schroeder, has ruled that those who were shot by Rittenhouse cannot be called victims or alleged victims during the trial. But you know what they can be called? Looters, rioters, and arsonists. And this is despite the fact that there is zero evidence that Rittenhouse had firsthand knowledge of any of his, we're going to call them it, victims looting, rioting, or setting fires before he shot them. The idea that they're going to say that calling the pers- a person who got shot not a victim, like, I'm sorry, what? Excuse me? Yeah, this is dehumanizing. And it's ridiculous because there are people that lost their lives and they are not victims. My brain can't comprehend the ridiculousness of this. It's bizarre and biased, painfully biased. Bizarre. Just just frustrated. Like, I don't I have no words. I'm just so angry. Yeah. That that is a thing that's happening and disappointed and all of the feelings. I feel like it's strange. So this has been a very heavy true crime digest, but I think that we covered some cases that needed to be talked about. And I think that we touched on, you know, parts of the person's investigations that I didn't know before and some haunting statistics. 
Yeah, I, I feel like it brought a lot of light to a lot of missing people. And again, I'm going to say it, if you have a printer, print out one flyer of someone missing in your area and put it somewhere public. And if all of us do this, what if one of them comes home because of it? How cool would that be? Yeah. And if you don't have a printer, when you see it, pop across your social media feed, share it. Yeah, share it. Takes a second. Not going to hurt anything. Well, with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 